But you know, as we have walked through this wonderful gospel, given to us by the perspective, or from the perspective of the gospel writer Matthew, this apostle who, who understood that there was a connection between the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This baby that, as we begun our first sermon three and a half years ago, we were focusing upon the fact that Jesus had come. The first time came as a little baby born of a virgin in an obscure little town called Bethlehem. In fact, no room was found in the inn for them to, to be for him to be born, so he was born in a stable of all places. Yet Matthew understood that this was no ordinary baby that was born. This was a child who was born in fulfillment of, of many words of prophecy. How he was born, where he was born. The fact that, that he was, his birth was heralded by the angels was witnessed by a band of lowly shepherds. And that he was worshipped, worshipped by magi, wise men, who traveled a great distance to come and to see this baby born in Bethlehem. Matthew understood that there was a theme to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that His people, the Jews, ought to certainly recognize and appreciate because yes, Jesus was coming as the Son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. Just as the Word of God had prophesied that God would do. But also, He was coming as the promised Messiah. The very one who would throw off the shackles that His people were bound in. Matthew also understood that Jesus, this Jesus, unlike any other person in all of human history, was about to fulfill the very promises God had made to Israel's greatest earthly king, David. When God told David, I will raise up one from your descendants who will be the ultimate king. He will sit on your throne and He will rule, but He will not only rule over the nation of Israel, this ultimate King, the King of kings, will rule over all the nations of the world. We saw how Jesus came on the scene preaching the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We saw how Jesus taught with such authority and preached with such divine authority that multitudes of people just gasped and said, we've not heard anyone preach with such authority. We saw as Jesus demonstrated the divine power of the kingdom of God as the ultimate king, as He worked miracles like people had never seen and has not been witnessed on the earth since. As He gave sight to the blind, as He restored people's ability to be able to walk, or for people that had never walked in all of their lives, to be able to, 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 to give the ability to walk to those who were lame, or those who were dumb, to be able to speak, those who were deaf, to be able to hear. Hey, He even raised the dead from the grave. Oh, the people said, no one has ever been like this man. Ironically and sadly, though, as we saw the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus begin to develop, John hit the nail right on the head at the very beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. He says, He came to His people and His people knew Him not. Received Him not. 
After all that Jesus did to demonstrate that He was the fulfillment of the great prophetic promise to be the King, the King of the Jews, the King of all of kings, the Lord of lords, we know that by and large Jesus was rejected by His own people. So much so that they betrayed Him. Turned Him over to the Roman authorities. And even jeered And yelled, crucify Him. Crucify Him. His blood will be on us and our children. But before Jesus' arrest and before Jesus' crucifixion and His bodily resurrection from the grave and subsequent ascension into heaven to be at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus, we're told in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, sat on the Mount of Olives. And if you're in the region of Jerusalem, and if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you're across the Kidron Valley, looking directly across the hill to the city of Jerusalem. And at that time, it was a beautiful city, completely walled with massive walls, built by Herod the Great. And the temple had been reconstructed, and it was indeed an impressive facility. Oh, such a gorgeous Gorgeous facility considered one of the wonders of the civilized world of that time. And as Jesus and His disciples sat on the Mount of Olives and Jesus taught this small band of followers. Though the multitudes rejected Him, He poured Himself into this small band of followers we know as disciples. And He told them in this series of lessons and parables that we know as the Olivet Discourse, He told them things that would pertain to life to come. In fact, Jesus was describing to them the last days. We're just saying joy to the world. A hymn that has been tailored about the first coming of Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. But as we hear the teachings of Jesus in this Olivet Discourse, and He's talking and describing in detail in the Scriptures to His disciples of the way things will be on this earth when He comes again. There will be people who will be believers in Jesus Christ even during that horrific period of history that will be in the future known as the Great Tribulation. A period of time that will last for seven years subsequent to the rapture of the church out of this world when we who are alive and remain, and I do pray, selfishly, that the rapture will occur during my lifetime. I just think it would be neat to be whisked up in the, in the twinkling of an eye at the shout of the angel and, and the trumpet sound and just find ourselves completely levitated upwardly towards the Lord at the speed of light to join the Lord and those who've gone before us in that great reunion in the clouds and then subsequently on our way to heaven. But woe to those who are left behind. Those who at that time are not genuine followers of Jesus Christ because there will be a period of seven years, the first three and a half years, it will appear to be somewhat peaceful. There will be a very charismatic leader who will come on the scene and he will be talking peace and he will be with, with such charisma that he'll bring the nations, even the Jews of that time, to believe that he's, he's chartering some type of world peace. But at the mid 
point of the great tribulation or the tribulation period, after three and a half years, his demeanor will totally change. The Bible tells us in Daniel and in Revelation that he will be empowered by Satan himself. He will be the most diabolical, hideous, evil, powerful figure the world has ever witnessed. And he will vehemently pursue Jews and Christians. If you think the world has experienced anti-Semitism in the past, listen, ladies and gentlemen, it's nothing. Hitler's Holocaust will be a day in the park compared to where the Jews, what the Jews will be facing once Antichrist Christ comes on the scene. But not just the Jews. Followers of Jesus Christ, Christians will be persecuted widespread. If that's not bad enough, during that time, God's going to be pouring out through a series of plagues and cataclysmic, catastrophic events upon the earth that will make any of the worst of the earthquakes and tsunamis and, and fires that we've experienced appear to be nothing. This earth will be barrage with natural disasters that will send it reeling. Millions upon millions of people will die instantaneously. There will be plagues and pestilence. There will be pain and torment. There will be awful, immoral acts of violence spread all around the globe. Take God's word for it. You don't want to be here during that time period. We say, well, Pastor, when can that happen? If the rapture occurred today, it could start tomorrow. Or it could be a hundred years from now. Or a thousand years from now. Only God knows the hour of the day. But it is going to happen. And at the close of that time period known as the tribulation, Jesus says continually through the Olivet Discourse to His people, watch. He's speaking to a generation of believers that look into the future. This, this will be people who will come to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation time. You say, how is that possible? The Antichrist is going to be hunting Christians and persecuting Christians and then these plagues and, and, and terrible things happening on the globe. How can people possibly come to faith during such an awful time? They will. God will raise up a, an army of evangelistic Messianic Jews, 144,000 of them, whom He will seal. The Antichrist can't even touch or hurt. And they will preach boldly. Probably some of the greatest evangelistic preaching the world has ever heard will come from the mouths of those Jews who are now believers that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. People will come to Christ during that time. Unfortunately, many of those who come to Christ during the tribulation time will be persecuted. Many of them will be executed. There will be martyrs on the streets of many cities, Christians who will die for their faith during the tribulation time. But there will be Christians during that time. There will be believers. We see in the book of Revelation where God tells us through the prophet, uh, the apostle John that God will send an angel, a mighty angel, through the heavens. You're talking about some of these airplanes that write messages in the sky, imagine one of God's great celestial angels going through the air and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Many will come to Christ through that. 
There will be a generation of believers at the end of the tribulation time, and that's who Jesus is talking to. And repeatedly, you've heard in this series of messages in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus has been saying one thing over and over, I'm coming again. I'm coming again. Surely I will come again. You don't know the hour. You don't know, you don't know the day. No one does but the Father. But that's okay. I am coming. And when you see these signs, and Paul describes them as labor pains, Christ describes them as labor pains, he says, when these awful signs began to develop and to, began to, 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 to come with intensity, he says, no, it is near. We don't have any signs to tell us when the rapture will occur. It will just happen instantaneously. You may be driving your car. You may be in bed. You may be at work. You may be on the golf course or doing a holy hobby like fishing. I had to put that little plug in. But, but wherever you may be, in the instant, you'll be taken up. No sign, no warning, it's just that. But when the second coming, you, there will be plenty of signs to say, He's coming. It's soon. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but it is soon. And Jesus says over and over and over to that generation of believers during the tribulation time, and I believe we can glean as well as the disciples could glean back 2,000 years ago, Jesus says, no matter what, you make sure you are ready. And ladies and gentlemen, I believe with all my heart, with great conviction, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again to this world. And in His second coming, He will come, as the Scripture describes, in great power and glory. And He will come with one agenda, and that will be to bring judgment upon the earth. And he ain't coming alone, pardon the English. Because the Scriptures, as we will see, says clearly, He is coming with all His holy angels. That's exciting. And so we have seen, we have seen earlier in a parable, last week in fact, of the, the wise and the foolish uh, bridesmaids. How there will be people associated with the body of Christ. Some of them will be genuine followers of Jesus. How will you know? Because when Christ comes again, they'll be ready. As the wise bridesmaids were ready with oil for their lamps. But then there will be posers. False Christians. Oh, people who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I had a decision. I had some kind of emotional experience at church. I signed a card. Oh yeah, my name's on the church roll. They look like bridesmaids. They look like Christians. They talk like Christians. They even act like Christians sometimes. But just like the foolish bridesmaids, they weren't ready. They aren't ready. These will be the people that say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, and the rapture occurs, and poof. They say, well, where did my family go? Where did my Christian friends go? Huh, I've been left behind. Well, they won't be laughing about that, because I believe the reality of the seriousness of the situation will settle in at that time. But there are people who pose as Christians. They were in, in, in back in the early church. There are people today and during the tribulation time, there will be people who will be affiliated with the body of Christ who will pretend to be Christians, and they're not. And Jesus gives them fair warning. 
He said, don't mess around with this thing called faith. Make sure that you're ready. And that would be my charge to you today. As we move forward in chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, we're going to look at another popular parable that deals with eternal rewards of faithful service. We often call it the parable of talents. Many of you know it practically by heart, but let me read. Beginning in verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two, uh, two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now, you'll see, first of all, for those that are rewarded, Jesus are, are, and, and the Master symbolically represents the Lord. And He gives to each of these servants based upon their ability, talents. Talents is a, a weight of money, if you will. But then again, it can be equated to abilities, talents, opportunities, resources. But the Master distributes the, the responsibilities equally. In other words, proportionally, based upon the abilities of each one of His servants. And then He goes off into a far country or goes off on a long trip and there they are. And so each one of these servants have equal opportunity to please the Master by doing what He said to do. Invest. Take what I've given, the Master says, and will take what I've entrusted to you. I know exactly what you can handle. Now all I make, I'm not expecting you to do anything more than what you're able to do, but just be faithful and invest it. So that when I return, there will be more. There will be profit, if you will. I realize with the economy like it's been for the past several years, those of you that maybe have money invested, you're probably really disappointed on the returns that you've been getting on some of your investments. But you know, you're never disappointed in the investments you make in God's kingdom. You see, the Lord assigns responsibilities to all of His followers, you and me included. Because Jesus is our Master. And He gives to you and me, each and every one of us, equally, based upon what He knows our own individual life situation to be, what our abilities are. But you know, God gives everybody time, gives everybody resources, He gives everybody opportunities and abilities. And you know what He expects? He expects you as a believer to invest what He's given to you. For Him. Not for your pleasure. Not for your gain. But He wants it for Himself. The Master was expecting the, the returns for Himself. After all, they were His servants. Everything they had belonged to Him. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 10, he says, so when you do that which is commanded you, talking to his disciples, so when you do that which is commanded you, say 
We have only done that. We're, we're un, say you are, we're un, unworthy slaves. In other words, when you do that which is commanded you, Jesus says, then you say, we're just unworthy slaves and we've only done that which we ought to do. Now that sounds a little foreign language to you. Let me interpret it. He says, to you and me as followers. When you do what you are supposed to do as a follower of Jesus Christ, don't puff yourself up and say, oh, look at here what I've done. Aren't I special? I, am I not something else? He says, simply say, uh, what we've done, if it's been good, if it has advanced the kingdom of God, if it brings glory to God, whether it's using my talents or abilities or my resources or my time, my life, he says, just say, we're unworthy slaves. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? You and I are unworthy servants. We don't deserve the privileges, the blessings that come through salvation. If you do anything good for the kingdom of God, you've only done that which you were supposed to do in the first place. It boils me over sometimes when I hear believers talk as if the Lord owes them something. I've been coming to church faithfully for so many years. God, I've served in this capacity in the church. I've done this. I, I, I've done that. Oh, God, You owe me. No, He doesn't owe you and me anything. Everything we do, we should be doing. And we should be doing it for His pleasure and for His glory. In John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus told His disciples, Herein is My Father glorified, that you, followers of Jesus Christ, you bear forth much fruit. Let me ask you, whether you're a young person, a middle-aged adult, or a senior adult, how fruitful has your life been for God? Let me make sure I get that in there. Because many of you are fruitful for yourselves. You've accumulated wealth. You've accumulated things. You've accumulated prestige. You've accumulated... Oh, there, there are a lot of things we do to, to benefit ourselves, but that's not the point. The main point is, what have you done with your life to this point? Then God were to hold you accountable right now. You would be able to say, Lord, this is what my life has produced in terms of eternal fruit for you. How pleased would God be with your life to this point? Paul understood this concept. There was a time in the Apostle Paul's life that he lived for himself. He was living for legalism in Judaism. He was living for his position as a Pharisee. He was living for prestige. He was living for acclaim. He was living for all the wrong things. And then Jesus arrested him. On the road to Damascus, Jesus encountered Saul of Tarsus, and there is where Saul's life changed radically. He went from being a servant of self to becoming a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it himself. He says, I, Paul, I'm a bond slave. I work for Jesus. That's my purpose in living. And guess what? It's yours too. Paul didn't owe Jesus Christ nothing more than you and I owe Him. 
Just because He was an apostle. Listen, God gives every one of us talents. And I mean that responsibility. There is something that God has uniquely carved out for you to do for His glory. And if you haven't discovered it yet, brother or sister, you need to get on the ball. Because every day that you live and you're not investing your life in the kingdom of God, you are wasting your life. You are wasting opportunities to accumulate fruit that will bring glory to God. Paul got it right. In one of his last writings, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, I believe at this point, Paul is only maybe days or weeks away from a sure executioner's acts. He knows. He's resigned himself. He's coming to the end of his earthly walk. Is he appealing the Supreme Court? Is he wringing his hands? Is he begging the Christians to come and peacefully protest in Rome? Is he begging for mercy before Caesar? Listen to what Paul says about it all. His life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved he is appearing. Do you love the concept that Jesus is coming again? Do you long for the, the reality that you will stand before Him? Or do you dread the thought? Because you know He will hold you and me accountable at that moment. As we look back in chapter 25 in Matthew's Gospel, as Jesus continues to unfold this story, you will see that He, that, that we, as His servants, as His people, will be equally rewarded in heaven. Begin reading there with me in verse 16. Then He who had received the five talents went and traded them, and He made five more. And likewise, He who had received two gained two more. But He who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid His Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of these servants came and settled accounts with them. So He who received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, look, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. If we were to fly on the wall in that hall, <clears throat> I believe you would see this man running to the room. You would see this servant eager and excited. You know, when you're a child and your parents give you a chore or something, provided you had the right frame of mind. And you really wanted to please them. Whether shining dad's shoes or putting the dishes away from mom or sweeping, cleaning your room. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Cleaning your room. I know I can see the drudgery coming over the young people's face. <gasps> but when you want to please them, and you worked hard, why? Shucks, you've gone even farther than what they expected you to do. You can't wait to drag them in and say, Oh, Mom, come here. Dad, Dad, come here, come here. i got to show you. Oh, you're excited. I'm so excited. Look, look. 
Because you can't wait to see the pleasure come over their face and the pride and how good it makes them feel. This, this servant was so excited. He said, Lord, you know the five that you gave me? Look, I've multiplied it five more. He wasn't saying, look at me. He was saying, Lord, look at this for you. It's for you, Lord. And the Lord, the Master rewarded him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of our Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. I believe he was just as eager. He didn't have as much to show. Maybe your younger brother or sister was not able to clean their room just as sophisticated as you. They couldn't reach on the top of the dresser. They couldn't get all the stuff up like you were. But, but you know what? They understood what you were doing and they wanted to do the same thing. So they rushed in their little room and they were just busy putting away their toys and, you know, and trying to make up the bed. So they didn't do as much as you did. But I'm going to tell you what, they were just as excited to drag mom and dad into their bedroom and say, yeah, and look what I did. Look what I did. And you know what? The same degree of pleasure that came across the face of your mom or dad when you did your room as a big brother or sister, listen, if you watch, you'll see the same degree of pleasure come over the face of the mom and dad when that little brother or sister, even though their efforts were feeble, just as proud. That's the way it was with the Lord. You don't see the Lord say, oh, yeah, two more talents, four, big deal. The other one's got ten. No! Do you understand? Do you look at the Scripture and see that Jesus is describing here, He's describing symbolically our Heavenly Father. And you'll notice that the reaction of the Master in verse 23 to the servant who invested himself in two talents and made two more with the same degree of intensity, the same degree of desire and faithfulness. Listen to the response. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Compare them, folks. Compare verse 21 and verse 23. Where's the difference? Do you see any degree of difference in the Lord's pleasure? No, he's saying the same thing. He's just as pleased with the one who had less than he was with the one who did more. Because you see, God understands. He knows, and what does that say with us? We will be rewarded more for our attitude than our accomplishments. You may be sitting here today and thinking, you know what, Pastor? I think the Lord will reward me, but won't be anything like Billy Graham. All I've done is work with the nursery and taught some preschoolers or all I've done is served on the Buildings and Grounds Committee or all I've done is help balance the books or serve as a deacon. You know, Billy Graham's got millions of people. Do you see the message that Jesus is saying when it comes to us standing before the Lord and being rewarded by the Lord? He's not going to be looking at the quantity. He's going to be looking at your attitude towards what He's given in you and entrusted you with, and how did you go about serving Him? If I understand this correctly, it wouldn't surprise me one bit when we get to heaven. Some of these preacher boys so polished and riding around in their $100,000 Lamborghinis or whatever, I don't know, I'm just dragging out a number. They may be 999000 I don't know. But anyway... And they, you know, they're sitting on top of a church empire, and boy, they got a fleet 
I mean, of cars. They got an army of staff, you know, writing their sermons for them and, and, and doing all their other work, hospital visitation for them. And they just sit back and get all the... Oh, man, listen. People say, oh, well, they get to heaven. All kinds of rewards. I believe there's going to be some people shocked in heaven. And God says, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I see your big church empire down there. I see all the things that all the people are praising you about. But friend, you know what? You have a stinking attitude. It's really about you. You gave very little attention to bringing glory to me. And then on the other hand, here's this bivocational preacher raising tobacco half the time and preaching as best he can in this little church, don't have many people, not much of a budget, scraping, doing several roles in the church. Hardly anybody even knows that little church is there. He's winning a few here and a few there to the Lord, but his heart is all in it. Every, every ounce of his energy is about how can I serve the Lord more? And he shows up before the Lord that day. He doesn't have a lot of earthly treasures and acclaims to lay before himself. But God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't underestimate how God looks at your life. It's not about what you possess. It's not about all the things you accumulate. It's not about how other people may praise you. It's about how does God see your attitude. Are you enthusiastically, wholeheartedly investing everything that God entrusts to you for His glory? Is it all about Him and not about you? To such, the Lord will say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Well, let's not forget the one who had the one talent. Who did? Let's see what he's got coming his way. Well, we're actually looking in contrast because instead of talking about the wonderful rewards that await for those who are faithful in serving the Lord, we're looking at a tragedy. An eternal tragedy of a wasted life. In verse 24, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew... You to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Now that wasn't uncommon, folks. Back then, they didn't have safe deposit box. They didn't have banks that they could go to or big safes and things like that. A lot of times, people would hide their possessions in the ground. That's why I want to go over there and dig in Courtney's backyard because i got a feeling there's a lot of treasure in there. But of course, Shelley's probably already found that. Just kidding. Because it was not uncommon for people to take something if they wanted to hide it and, and just find a spot and bury it. As forgetful as I am, I'd be broke. I'd never find what I buried. But anyway, he buried it in the ground. People understood that. That was a reasonable thing to do. If you want to keep something, if you want to hide something. And says, look, there you have what is yours. There it is, Lord. Brush it off. Got a little dirt and some earthworms, but here it is. Same, same amount. I didn't lose. And you can't accuse the servant of embezzling like some of the parables talked about. He didn't embezzle. He didn't steal. He gave back. So, why didn't the master say, well, well, you're a good and faithful servant. You didn't lose anything. That wasn't the response of the, of the Master, and it won't be the response of the Lord for those people who refuse to invest what God has entrusted to them in their lives. Look at verse 
26. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. And I don't believe that the Lord was incriminating Himself here. He was just building on what the man had just said. Let me rephrase it. If you had truly thought that I would reap where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't uh, scatter seed. He says, therefore, verse 27, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. In other words, if you truly believe what you're saying about me, you dummy, you wouldn't have it. Because you know I would have whipped you when I got back if you didn't have any interest. So that excuse out the window. What did it reveal about this wicked, lazy servant? Well, it revealed that he was wicked and lazy. But it was stupid. He didn't know the Lord. He didn't know his master. He was telling a lie about his master. That's not the way the other servants described him. There's no evidence in the Scripture that's the way it was. He was making this up. And he says, I was, oh, I was afraid of you. We are the only times that we're afraid of the law. When we break the law. I use cruise control. That's probably the most used part of my car. It's back, it's back to wear out on my old Honda Accord. But it's locked into one speed, so it doesn't matter. But, you know, used to be I'd be driving down the road, you know, and pop over the hill and there'd be a state car with a blue light on top of it. And I go, you know, check my speedometer. I was fearful. What if I'm breaking the law? Now I just sit on cruise control and all these other people are going, you know, slamming on the brakes and I'm just cruising on. Hey, officer! Have a good day! I'm fearful of you, Lord! I'm afraid of you! Why were you afraid? Yeah, the servants were afraid. He had an unhealthy fear because he didn't know Him. He was living in the household. Playing the role of a servant. Looked like a servant, talked like a servant. But he didn't know the Master. What people on the earth don't hold a healthy reverence for God? In other words, who are the people who fear God? And as Jesus is speaking in the context of the tribulation time, before the coming of the Lord and the signs that will say He's coming, He's coming. You, you know the people that are going to start to panic. In fact, the book of Revelation says that the rulers and all the people who have rebelled and rejected God, they will see the signs. And this is how hard and stiff-necked they are. They will see the signs that will say He is about to come. And they will moan and they will groan and they will mourn. They are afraid because they know They're doomed. When he gets here, they're going to be judged. You say, well, preacher, don't you fear the Lord? Yes, I do. I do. I fear the Lord. Just as the psalmist talked about fearing the Lord. Just as the Scriptures say, fear the Lord. But the fear I have is a healthy, reverential love for who He is. In His majesty and His power and His glory, in His grace and in His mercy. 
So, there will be people who will be serving. There will be superficial believers who bear no kingdom fruit for the Lord. And they will be like this servant when they stand before the Lord. I really feel sorry for these people because they have tricked themselves, convinced themselves that they're on the way to heaven. They really believe that when it's all said and done, whether at death, at the time of the rapture, or the return of Christ, they really believe that when it's said and done, they're in. Because after all, their grandmother was in church all the time. Or after all, they owned the Bible. Or after all, they did raise their hand at Bible school once upon a time. Oh, after all, they, they mentioned the name of Jesus once in a while. Oh yeah, man, I'm a good person. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, I think the most sobering and haunting passages in the Bible. He says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, he who is a servant who obeys me and invests his or her life and the resources and the time and the opportunities and the abilities to bring me glory, they will be the ones who will come back and there will be fruit to bear and there will be fruit to share and there will be times of glory. God says those are the ones that will be rewarded. This unfaithful servant... Well, let's look at the outcome. Verse 28. The Master says, Therefore take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. So the more that you serve God here, and the more faithful you are to God in this life, guess what? In heaven, in heaven, you're going to have even more opportunities to bring glory to Him. You will have more opportunities to experience joy like you've never experienced serving the Lord. And He will have an abundance. But for him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. What do you have? You have your life, you have your family, you have your friends, you have... I mean, as, as an unbeliever, what do you have? You have a lot of things. You do! But what do you say? Even what you have. When you come up empty-handed before God, He says, even what you have, you will lose. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have... Even what he has will be taken away. And look at verse 30. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Over and over in this discourse, back in chapter 24, verse 51, again in verse 11, uh, over in... Uh, Chapter 25, verse 30. In chapter 25, verse 41. In chapter 25, verse 46. Over and over, Jesus is saying for those who are superficial, those who are fake Christians, those who are unfaithful, those who are unfruitful, there's only one destination. You're going to hell. It is a place of absolute darkness. It is a place of, of absolute agony. And that's what happened to the unfaithful servant. Jesus has given a warning because spurious Christians, fake Christians will face the ultimate penalty of unbelief. And there is no second chance. We've got to move along. Drop down to verse 31. Because he changes gears, but he's on the same subject because he's talking about the very end. When Jesus comes 
the second time. His second advent to the world. When the Son of Man, and that's a description Jesus gives of Himself, it describes His connection with humanity. It's a humble description, but nonetheless, He is the Son of God. He is fully the God-man. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of glory. You don't have to turn back, boy. I guarantee if you go back to Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah 14, verse 4, it describes Jesus coming down and His feet settling upon the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says His majesty and power is so great that He absolutely splits that mountain across from the city of Jerusalem in half on that last day when He comes. There will be a great valley between Him as the armies gather around to wage war against the Messiah. But Jesus is not He's not wringing His hands because the Bible says He comes with how many of His angels? What percentage of His angels? All of His holy angels. Go back and read Revelation chapter 5 when John is in that celestial throne room of God. Listen to what John says. There are ten thousands times ten thousands times ten thousands myriads of powerful, divinely inspired and and empowered angelic beings. And Jesus says, I'm bringing them all with me. That is an intimidation factor. Look at verse 32. This is going to happen. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. It's interesting because most of the times in Scripture, God speaks of people as sheep. His people are His sheep. They know His voice. But there are some goats here. Now, I confess, we raised pigs and cows. We didn't raise any sheep. I've only been around a few goats. Talking about the animals, not people now. And... My understanding of the difference of the nature of sheep is sheep are usually docile and compliant and easy going. You know, they don't usually bother anybody. Goats, on the other hand, get those horns. You've heard, you've probably got a few family members, you said, that goat head. Just, you know, just goats sometimes are, they're, they're kind of rambunctious and they ornery and they get on each other's nerves. And you'll see two goats out there, bang, 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 heads together. You know? And, and so the goats will aggravate the sheep. So once in a while, shepherds that have sheep and goats, they separate them because the goats, the sheep go on the right side, the favored side of God. Goats on the left. Listen to what he says. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now who's Jesus talking to there? He's talking to faithful believers who are fruitful, who have invested themselves in Christ's work and bring glory to Him during the tribulation time. And He's saying, Come on over here on my right. You, you are my people. You belong to Me. Inherit the kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom that He's about to establish on the earth for a thousand years. They will be in His very presence. And because we've been raptured and we're already in the presence of the Lord, we already got little sheep heads. No, not, not just kidding. We belong to the sheep, okay? You say, how long is that all possible? Once again, I remind you. He says He's going to gather all the nations 
That means all the people. That means all the nationalities, languages, tribal groups, all the nations. They will be before His great throne. How is that possible? Well, if He's bringing all the angels. And if you remember in Matthew 13, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus describes this day, this judgment day. He says, I'll have angels. And these angels, like lasers, they can they'll sweep through. They will separate out the wheat from the tear. They will know genuine believers and they'll know fake believers. They'll know those who are hard-headed unbelievers. And, they, and the angels will do the sorting. When you've got about 100 billion angels, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't take long to cover the face of the earth and sort out the people. And they will be sorted out in an instant. And they will be before the Lord. And He'll say, Sheep over here to my right, get ready. You're coming into the kingdom. No more suffering. No more persecution. No more sin. No more hardship. You're going to be with me as I reign upon the earth. I like how the Lord says, verse 35, For I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will, and I believe they'll be humbly, honestly saying, they, wait, wait, wait. Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When were you sick and we came to, when, when were you ever in prison and we visited? Where, Lord, we, we, I can't remember. And he says, when you did this to the least of these, you did it to me. Look at verse 40. Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. You can make a note in your Bible. But do you realize in John's Gospel, Jesus tells His disciples, no longer do I call you my servants, but I call you my friends. You are a friend of Jesus if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. But then, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, He goes on further. He says He calls those who are His people, brothers and sisters. So you see what Jesus is saying? He says, all during the tribulation period, when you fed hungry Christians, when you gave water to thirsty Christians, when you nursed sick Christians during this persecution time, when they were in prison and you went to visit them, knowing you were risking your own life. He says, when you did this to the least, even the smallest, even the most insignificant of these faithful Christians, you were doing it to me. How do I know, Jesus might have said, that you are truly one of mine? It's the way that you carried out your life. It's not just what you say, ladies and gentlemen. It's what you do. And that's what was separating. Of course, Jesus knew because He's omniscient. He knows the difference between the good and the bad and the fake and the real. Verse 41, Then He will also say to those, those on the left hand, Who are those? Bah, goats. I want to see if y'all paying attention. Depart from Me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and the angels. Hell wasn't made for people. Not originally. Hell was originally made for the devil and the demons. It's a hideous, terrible, tormenting place. Absolutely absence of the glory of God and the presence of God's love and mercy. It's awful. And so that's where the goats go. 
They're going to be neighbors with the devil and the demons for how long? Forever. Forever. Verse 41 or 42, For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will say, and answer the Lord, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, and, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will say, and answer to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. What does that say? For us as contemporary Christians, how do you love fellow Christians? Really? How do you love fellow church members? Let's just boil it down to the local congregation. Do you even tell one another, Hey brother, I love you. Hey sister, I love you. In Christ, I love you. Now that's good. That's a good start. But heaven's sake, don't stop there. Here we see a brother or sister hungry for whatever reason. Feed them! If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're sick, go visit them and help them. Even if they're in jail for whatever reason, if they're a true believer of Jesus Christ, go visit with them. If they're struggling in their marriage, go and sit by them and talk to them and counsel them and pray with them. If they're down on their luck, then you dig deep into your pocket and you be willing to help them. Listen, don't sit back and simply say, I love you and then go on your way. James had a rebuke about that. He says, if you see a brother or sister hungry and naked and you just say, Blessed brother, God bless you. (laughs) He says, that's nothing. Do something about it. Don't we sing? They will know that we are Christians by our love. By our love. In verse 46, These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The day is coming. The day is coming. Every one of us will stand before the Son of God. Every single person that has ever lived, I don't care if it's for one second or one century, every person will stand before the judge of the universe and you won't have a defense attorney and you won't have the ACLU to bail you out and you surely won't have a liberal government to rationalize why you're so what you are. Oh no, oh no. You will stand alone. I will stand alone. And we will give an account. I really sincerely pray that you know for a fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Did you notice I didn't just say Christian? People use Christian nowadays like they use Republican or Democrat or Boy Scout or Girl Scout or, uh, you know, uh, these labels. No. You. He's warned you. You. Make sure 
you know that you are an authentic follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I stand before you today and say on the authority of the Word of God, these are the only people that will see the glories of heaven and eternal life. The precious good news is that He gives you opportunity to take care of that now. And the invitation is to you. Come. Jesus says, come. Follow me. He didn't say come. Put your name on the church roll. He says, come. Follow me. If any man come after me, Jesus says in Luke 9.23, let him deny himself or herself. Take up their cross daily. And follow me. You're following somebody. I promise you, you are. You are. Unbeknownst, you could be following Satan. Thinking that you're on the way to heaven and you'll follow Him right on into the pits of eternal hell. On the other hand, if you're following Christ, the Spirit of God daily in your heart will remind you that you belong to Jesus. You're safe and secure. And your eternal destination has been sealed. I can't answer for you. But I know who I'm following. And I know where I'm headed. I hope you'll be there. Would you bow your heads for just a moment and reflect upon the invitation? Lord, I know these are hard words. Especially for those of us living in a Western Hemisphere culture where we're pretty pampered. Pretty self-sufficient. Pretty self-centered. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that we're going to be held accountable for eternity. That's exactly what Your Word says. So Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit will take the powerful words of the inspired and errant Word of God and speak to hearts here today. For any that do not truly know You as Lord and Savior and are not a part of the body of Christ, Lord, I pray today, lovingly You will reach out to them and give them the faith to believe upon You, to be a part of the family of God for eternity and know the kingdom of God and all the rewards and blessings that go with that. I pray for Christians who are just kind of straddling the fence, dabbling in both worlds, Though they belong to you, they're wasting their time in worldly pursuits, materialistic ambitions, selfish desires. And they ought to be invested in your kingdom. I pray you'll speak to their hearts. Whatever the need is, Lord, we give it to you. We trust it to you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.